Hi, my name's James Fox. This is Off The Fence. We're back. Labour Party Conference has been and gone. So we're going to be talking about that a little bit uh, on the show today. Uh, I've got Alex Maskell here too. What's up, everyone? It's good to be back, right? And we haven't done a show for about two weeks uh, because of the conference season. Um, I was away up in Liverpool. And um, I was busy doing other fun things because I live a rich and full life. (laughs) Writing a book, I hear. Something along those lines, yes. Okay. Uh, There's lots coming up on the show this evening. What have you got lined up, Alex? Uh, I'm going to be taking us through the news of the sexual assault hearings surrounding uh, soon-to-be probably Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. That guy. Anyway, that prick. Labour conference, uh, Corbyn's speech, some interesting policies around renters, private renters, um, and also a Labour Party political broadcast, which is quite interesting. Uh, we'll, We'll tell you why later on. The World Transformed happened as well. Um, We'll tell you what all that was as well. But quickly, before all of that, you hear about this? They've had another Facebook breach. Yes, they've announced that uh, 50 million user accounts may have been compromised. Uh, I've changed my password, have you? Uh, Not yet. Uh, Apparently it changes nothing, but I just wanted to be sure. (laughs) Apparently it's due to uh, some sort of um, fault in how you upload birthday video messages. Which is kind of funny. I think Jim Watson on Twitter pointed this out as well. Oh, great. It's uh, the worst thing about Facebook that's gone wrong. It's not even the good stuff. (laughs) I didn't know that that was functionality that they had because I don't do that shit. Well, certainly not anymore. So, yeah, that's that's new. We've all heard about Donald Trump being laughed at in the UN, yeah? Uh, Yes, yes, we did hear it. Laughing with him, I think you'll find. He was very... He's actually a very, very funny, witty guy. Uh, (laughs) And it's absolutely not at all that they were laughing at the gigantic orange man with third grade syphilis brain. Oh God. I saw Jacinda Arden, I think her name is, uh, Prime Minister of New Zealand on the Stephen Colbert show, saying um, what it was like she was actually there at the time. And she was saying there was an initial laugh when he opened up. Uh, I can't remember what the statement was that, that was so ludicrous. I think it's that he's been really successful as a president. And then he responded with, oh, I didn't expect to get a, a response like that. And then yeah, people yeah. laughed with him, kind of in a joking, because he kind of bounced off of yes. it. Yes. So, but of course they were laughing at him because he's a fucking ridiculous yeah. human being. Speaking of that, though, we've all heard about that. I wanted to mention this, because this was uh, from uh, about a week or so ago, and wasn't talked about enough. Donald Trump urged Spain to build a wall across the Sahara Desert. God, he rules. <laughs> he suggested this to the Spanish government, uh, tackling the Mediterranean migration crisis by emulating one of his most famous policies and building a wall across the Sahara Desert. A policy he hasn't and really has no way of doing. <laughs> this is Josep Borrell who said this, the Spanish foreign minister, uh, the Guardian reporting that the US president brushed off the scepticism of Spanish diplomats who pointed out that the Sahara Desert stretched for 3,000 miles. And he said this by saying... The Sahara border can't be bigger than our border with Mexico. Of course not, because everything American is biggest and the best, and Donald Trump is the biggest and and best. Africa is probably the last thing that he thinks about um, in this situation. Or that it's it's absolutely massive and can't be uh, as big as as significant as America. Like, it, it seems like a small thing considering how evil he and all of his allies are, but he is extraordinarily dumb. Yeah, it's... It still stuns me. It shouldn't. Like two, three years later, it sh- really shouldn't. But anyway, yeah, you would have thought we would have become jaded, but no, <laughs> he he finds new ways to fill us with wonder every week. So uh, next things, well, this also from the Guardian, uh, a little bit more closer to home. I wanted to mention this because again, it's something I don't think it's been mentioned enough. 
international discussion. The government has spent two years and £40,000 of taxpayers' money trying to hide how little the Northern Powerhouse Minister visited the north of England in his role. That's a lot of money to spend on a cover-up it to is. stop the people of this country from finding out what their government is up to. Uh, one prominent Northern figure called it a, quote, blatant disregard for the principles of democratic accountability. Uh, so this started in February 2016. The Guardian submitted some uh, freedom of information requests uh, to the Department for Communities and Local Government, asking how regularly James Wharton, who was the uh, Northern Powerhouse Minister at the time, um, travelled outside of London. Uh, and he'd been the minister for six months back then. You're meant to get back to these FOI requests within 20 days. They didn't do that. But actually, four months later, they got back and said, yeah, we're not going to do it. We're denying the request. Um, which there's some legal gra- there's some grounds to do it if it's far too expensive or, you know, things like that. But for this, they, they didn't. And they're requesting the diary entries of this James Wharton uh, minister. Uh, the Information Commissioner's Office then undertook an investigation during the course of which it found that the department adopted, quote, what appears to have been a strategy of willful procrastination in order to obstruct a, a request for information. The DCLG uh, department appealed against the decision to the first tier tribunal of information rights, where in early 2018, Judge Hazel Oliver ruled that the department must hand over Wharton's diary. This whole process, from start to finish, took 26 months. Christ, it's astonishing the ways our government finds to suck. But it gets, it gets funnier, because not only did this massive, just pointless exercise happen, it turns out that the government knew that it was just going to come out to be public anyway. So they were just fighting a losing battle, wasting taxpayers' money for no real reason. Internal communications revealed by subsequent FOI requests show that despite spending 40k trying to stymie the release of information, the government knew as early as March 2016 it had little chance of preventing the information being made public. Yeah, 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 but like money is fake to them and they just wanted to put off the responsibility for as long as possible. All entirely a pointless exercise and a waste of time and money when they could have just owned up to it. I mean, they could have, but they're pieces of shit, so they weren't going to. Let's just remind people what the Northern Powerhouse was. George Osborne's brainchild of kickstarting the north of England again by. Oh, yes, a thing that the Conservatives famously are concerned with. Yeah. So that's the reason why this was put in uh, and tried to be found out. And it's a bit, they obviously tried to cover it up. We're, we're doing this, this program of a Northern Powerhouse without actually uh, going to the north, without actually doing anything up there. It's very advanced. I mean, if, if going up north would you know, mean you'd do so well, why is the north failing? Let's move on. I just want to quickly talk about the World Transformed, right? The World Transformed is a kind of fringe festival that goes on around the Labour Party conference every year. It happened again this year, being the third year of the festival. Uh, and it's essentially, I guess it's not organised by the Momentum directly, but it very much is the Momentum Festival, really. I went up again to Liverpool this year to see what it was like, and um, it was very interesting. You went last year, Alex. How did you find it? Uh, I enjoyed it. I, it was it was good fun. I hung out with some friends, met some cool people, went to some events, uh, missed the David Harvey talk, which I'm still mad about a year later. Let's just talk about what it was like this year. Um, there's a few really good panels on there. Uh, the Media Reform Panel, Problems with Media Democracy. And there was actually uh, Tom Mills and Dan Hyde from the Media Democracy podcast there. Other speakers as well. It was much better than the Media Reform Panel last year, which was kind of just outlining problems with the media. And um, this had a lot more ideas um, on the table. And they do follow the, um, the proposals put forward by Corbyn and the Labour Party at the moment, uh, a few weeks back on this regard. 
um, you know, uh, journalists being able to vote who their editor should be at public broadcasters like the BBC. So what you're saying is it was a sort of Stalinist rage at free media. <laughs> it was entirely not that. But, you know. When are we going to start the Stalinist rage at the free media? But there's, I, obvi- there's I, obvious I stuff. I so much about this. I want, <laughs> we need to get our shit together. Is there uh, a reason why you're telling me off mic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't want them to hear that we're secret Stalinists. <laughs> Anyway, that was really good, that panel. That was on Sunday. That night, though, there was a movement in government, the name of it, and it was essentially discussing what happens to this movement that's behind Jeremy Corbyn, momentum, uh, everything like that, because I'm grassroots. What happens to those once a Labour government happens, you know, if and when Jeremy Corbyn becomes elected? Paul Mason was speaking on that one. Laura Parker was speaking on that one. Um, That one was really quite interesting, particularly those two speakers I found very, very uh, inspiring on that topic. Um, There was Mélenchon, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, topping the polls to be next French president at the moment. Yeah, that'd be fun. Um, He turned up. Boy, that was interesting. I can imagine. Uh, His English isn't wonderful. It's not bad, but he did about a minute or two of English at the start and admitted himself that, you know, my English isn't great, so I'm going to do the rest in French now with a translator next to me. Well, the translator translated was very poetic in a kind of French flamboyant way. I don't know, maybe that's the, uh, the literal translations to English. Maybe it's... Um, less poetic in French, but I've always understood French to be a kind of poetic language. Yeah, maybe this is just the way that they talk. Yeah. (laughs) It's just beautiful. Um, Yeah, and there were some interesting moments. There was a lot of, you know, um, obvious clapping to kind of socialist themes that you'd expect from him. And then noticeably much more subdued applause when he just went, you know, we need to neutralise Juncker and the European Commission. (laughs) So not that people on the left can't believe those things, but, you know, to a Corbynite audience, which I think is a lot more pro Europe, maybe pro Remain. Yeah, it certainly found the certainly the activist base has found itself on a very specific side of the Remain Leave yeah. thing in terms of the actual coalition. And it's still a, it's still a discussion that's being had, really. So it was an interesting moment when he was going on on those topics. It was like, okay, so we do clap this as well. <laughs> I mean, that's strong. That's that's good. That's yeah. that's certainly kind of funny that he went like, ah, we'll go there. It'll be it, fine. It was interesting anyway. He did most of it off a speech, and obviously the translation was on a paper with the translator so for most of that it was just the translator reading out what was on the page um, but at the end he went off the fly and just started doing stuff not pre-planned and what, tra- just riffing crowd work yeah and the translator had to you know i'm gonna say struggle he did much better than i would have because sure. i can't speak french so you know hats off to him he did his best um, but there was moments where there was kind of collective translation from all the people in the crowd that could speak french which was quite interesting I mean, that's good. That's the sort of community crowdsourcing of things that, you know, the left should really be standing for. Why should we be accepting an authoritarian translation handed down to us from a single privileged source? Also, a book reading of the life of Clement Attlee, which had Paul Mason, Owen Jones doing it, and the grandson of Clement Attlee, and others as well. That was really interesting, and it was something different. There's lots of different things going on with the world transformed if you've not been before. It's not just panels of people talking. There'll be other events. There was, there was like a football um, tournament you could play in if you en- want to enter the team. Obviously, they do the Ed Miliband pub quiz every year. You know, it's trying to do something a bit different to engage people that aren't normally engaged in politics and don't want to go and sit in a conference hall um, listening to five blokes go on about politics for about an hour um, and then do a Q&A for 15 minutes at the end. Um, so, you know, there's something different there. And uh, one of those was reading that book reading, which is, if people don't know who, about Clement Attlee, it was interesting. Um, one of the biggest figures in the history of the Labour Party. And certainly a huge pivotal figure in terms of the British kind of social democratic state that has been chipped away at for the last 40 years. Definitely, definitely. Anyway, 
Uh, I'm going to quickly move on to what you've got, Alex. Uh, take it away. What's happened with Brett Kavanaugh in America? Yes. So after a very long and contentious hearing and quite stomach-churning questioning, Senate Republicans managed to pass through the Senate Judiciary Committee a uh, forward proceeding on the election of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. There's been some contention in the last couple of uh, in the last couple of minutes where Lisa Murkowski and Jeff Flake, two Republican swing votes, uh, have said that they will only support a vote in the case of a week-long FBI probe into exactly what happened regarding uh, the events that we're going to be laying out here. Which is good, that kind of buys some more time, that kind of allows for some things that have been precluded otherwise to, you know, be brought up and to be properly, like, you know, the powerful people are going to be made to account for them, hopefully. Uh, but, yeah, this this is the latest thing in a whole story that we're going to be delving into now. So, um... Uh, so basically since the 80s, uh, it's been the project of conservative groups like the Federalist Society in particular uh, to stage basically a coordinated takeover of the United States judiciary by conservative judges, with the end goal being essentially the overturning of the last century of liberatory judicial rulings, abortion rights, collective bargaining rights, uh, basically any accountability that the president might have, any any kind of constraint on the power of rich people to do whatever they damn well please with their property. Uh, four current Supreme Court justices are Federalist Society members, as well as former Judge Antonin Scalia and Robert Bork, who legendarily was rejected by the Senate for being an extremist who would have destroyed the previous generations of rulings. How the times have changed. Um, they push the idea of originalism, which holds that judges should always privilege the framers of the Constitution's understanding of how it would be interpreted, which is insane and not why you have a judiciary. You have a judiciary so that laws can be interpreted in the spirit of the time. It's this sort of pseudo-religious kind of... I, I really buy into the thesis that America has a civic religion, where they've instilled like principles of religious faith into their like the way that they view america and the state and the like traditions of the country and this is basically the practice of that and uh, commentators such as jackman's natalie sure have written at length about how hatred of women's autonomy is a core aspect of this ideology of originalism uh to quote her here uh for women to have freedom, the unpaid care roles they disproportionately perform, and which sustain society, must be equitably distributed across it. This means socialising basic needs and building rich social support systems in common, which requires redistributing large amounts of the property the Federalist Society was invented to protect. Without a robust welfare state, the burden of care and survival falls squarely on individuals and families forcing anyone who isn't wealthy to balance the simultaneous need to generate wages with the other necessary tasks of life. And so, you know, to those kinds of people, the the potential threat of redistribution that comes with a social welfare state is something that must be fought tooth and nail, and it's something that disproportionately damages women. Even that is aside from, for instance, their fairly unilateral disdain for the kind of uh, judicial rulings that made, uh, for instance, abortion legal across the country. Uh, you know, that's considered to be something that's seriously under threat uh, should Kavanaugh be elected to the Supreme Court. Um, 
Now, Kavanaugh was a well-respected conservative judge, uh, which basically, like, every every conservative with a law degree gets laundered into being a respected conservative judge by groups like the Federalist Society and by a vast uh, army of right-wing apparatchiks uh, who basically have to pick from the fairly uh, crappy lot that they're given from what is broadly a very liberal profession. A very justice-minded profession, for the most part. This is why, like, if you are a conservative judge, you're disproportionately likely to get ahead, as is the case with a great number of mediocrities. Um, and the the kind of laundering of Kavanaugh put away a number of weird things in his past. Uh, for instance, he had some weird irregularities with massive debts suddenly being paid off with no explanation, uh, including, I think, about $200,000 on ba uh, baseball tickets that no one could come up with an adequate explanation of. Uh, he was also a part of the legal team which worked under uh, Kenneth Starr to impeach President Clinton, uh, but upon joining the Bush White House, immediately took up the belief that the president should be immu immune from prosecution. So obviously, given the Iraq war and the massive war crimes that were committed in the act of doing that and kind of, you know, the Iraq war invasion being a massive war crime in and of itself you know there's kind of obvious extrapolations forward to trump and what the trump administration and what indeed any future republican administration might do if they can't be held criminally liable for the criminal acts that they may or may not commit um just in generally he's like a creepy reactionary goblin and just like everyone else at the federalist society and also he's quite young by judge standards so he will sit there for 40 years if he does get uh, elected, assuming he doesn't get impeached. And just to clarify, uh, Supreme Court, for the those that don't know, they basically on there for their life. Yes, their they lifetime appointments. Of course, they can retire, as obviously uh, Robert Kennedy did, which is why this seat is, needs filling. But yeah, he will sit there for as long as he needs to to completely disassemble any legal precedents that offer regular people any kind of liberation or empowerment you know going just the last generation of uh like any kind of positive legal ruling gone um so about two weeks ago on september the 13th uh democratic senators revealed that they were aware of an allegation against kavanaugh claiming that during a party when both were teenagers kavanaugh and a friend mark judge sexually assaulted and attempted to drunkenly rape a woman uh, this came after a report by The Intercept that Congressman Diane Feinstein, who is a Democrat, uh, was refusing to reveal a letter she'd revealed from a, quote, California constituent re uh, regarding something he'd done in his school days to her, uh, just refusing to reveal it to her colleagues, uh, which created a great deal of tension and ultimately forced their hand on revealing this. Uh, this woman attempted to intervene in this complaint process at many points, uh, during the process of nominating uh, Kavanaugh and prior to his nomination, before he, while, while he was still on the shortlist that the Federalist Society handed the Trump administration, uh, a few days later, a few days later, uh, the woman identified herself as Christine Blaisley Ford, a California psychology professor, uh, who said in an interview with the Washington Post uh, that she had long-running trauma from this, including a mention to her therapist in 2012. Uh, describing her uh, assailants as being from an elitist boys' school who then went on to become highly respected and high-ranking members of society in Washington. 
Uh, her husband claims that in private conversations she did mention Kavanaugh by name at the time. Uh, Kavanaugh denied it categorically, and Mark Judge gave multiple interviews painting Kavanaugh as a complete Boy Scout. Uh, Judge himself is a confessed alcoholic who described his own high school drinking and partying in a book called Wasted Tales of Eugenics Drunk, which mentions, quote, Bart O. Kavanaugh puking in someone else's car the other night and passing out on his way back from a party. Uh, he's now a writer and filmmaker who works for multiple conservative outlets, including The Daily Caller and The Post. Uh, other classmates heavily disputed this characterization. Um, Kavanaugh's own yearbook made ref uh, reference to his heavy drinking and him being a, quote, Renate alumnus. Essentially a contemptuous joke about having hooked up in some capacity with a classmate, Renate Dolphin. Uh, the implication being that she was an institution many people, quote, attended. Uh, this was apparently a commonplace joke amongst bragging football members. Uh, what's kind of bizarre is she was actually on the list of old friends of his who was on a list of 35, uh, uh, of 65 women uh, claiming that he was of unimpeachable character, although she actually withdrew her, her endorsement of him after this came to light, saying that she was actually extremely hurt. One conservative op operative on Twitter actually set out an elaborate conspiracy theory uh, saying that uh, Christine Blaisley Ford was mistaking Brett Kavanaugh for a friend of his who looked a bit similar to him in one photograph once. Uh, and, of course, 54% of Republicans said that Kavanaugh should be confirmed whether her allegations are true or not. Uh, so that's just a kind of... It's just wild out in the open there. It doesn't matter if he actually sexually assaulted someone. Yeah, let's just put him through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he's a conservative and he's, you know, Trump would be doing the right thing and he's a... He's a, the, the, they framed it consistently as him being a decent man and just asserting that he was a decent man. And apparently he was a decent man whether or not the attempted rape accusation is true, which kind of says it's all about how much weight they give attempted rape to someone's decency. So after coming under fire and fearing for her safety, uh, Ford agreed to testify in front of the Senate Judiciary committee with the goal of stopping his nomination or at least firing up some kind of an investigation uh, that could you know properly put this to bed and you know establish a proper questioning of what went on here uh, she gave a detailed horrifying testimony on her incredibly brutal experience and the trauma that arose from it and what really kind of struck me was how common of an experience this seemed to be that just certainly my my twitter was just lined with people saying like this match this is exactly the kind of thing that happens to you know a huge portion of the women i know this is completely typical and it, it's this this entire issue i think kind of spoke to a fundamental disconnect in the way that a lot of women experience the world and in the way that a lot of men who obviously inhabit most of the positions of power in society inhabit the world which is that for women uh, like, sexualized violence and harassment at the hands of men is a common thing and is something that needs redress. And to a lot of men, it seems like rape and sexual assault isn't something that really happens very often. It's a marginal crime that doesn't affect very many people. And a lot of them kind of are just trumping up their own things. And it speaks this this disconnect matching up entirely with power as it's being wielded, I think speaks to the really grotesque dynamic that kind of arose from this. And when Lindsey Graham says, oh, it's, it's not nice people that do a sexual assault or rape, you know, we can tell this guy's a nice guy right now. Yeah, uh, that, that's... As if the, there's some sort of myth that uh, the only people that commit sexual assault 
or rape are like actual ogres. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're people who go around the entire time talking about how terrible they are personally, uh, pushing over anyone who gets in their way. It could easily be a, a manipulative, seemingly nice guy. I mean, yeah. there's tons of serial or killers. Or a guy who is nice to most people, except that I mean, he views certain women in a certain it's just like, situation it's, with the contempt necessary yeah. to yeah. view them as being it's ridiculous. fine to rape. It's, it's, Ted Bundy was, came across as like a really nice guy to a lot of women, and he killed dozens of them. Yeah. It's just insane to... I think it's a good point right now to bring in this clip, because uh, we mentioned Jeff Flake uh, voting voting for uh, the nomination process to advance to the Senate floor. Um, previously, he, he had earlier in the day outlined that he was going to do that, but there was some speculation last minute whether or not he'd changed because there was delays, there was talks that he was in with other people, and there was incidents like this on an elevator when he was heading to the hearing, uh, stopped by two women, uh, maybe more women, I don't know. There was tons of women apparently protesting outside and in the corridors, but these two women or more women stopped the elevator door from closing and had this to say to him. I told the story of my sexual assault. I told it because I recognize in Dr. Ford's story that she's telling the truth. What you are doing is allowing someone who actually violated a woman to sit in the Supreme Court. This is not tolerable. You have children in your family. Think about them. I have two children. I cannot imagine that for the next 50 years, they will have to have someone in the Supreme Court who has been accused of violating a young girl. What are you doing, sir? I was sexually assaulted and nobody believed me. I didn't tell anyone, and you're telling all women that they don't matter, that they should just stay quiet because if they tell you what happened to them, you're going to ignore them. That's what happened to me, and that's what you're telling all women in America, that they don't matter. They should just keep it to themselves because if they have told the truth, they're just going to help that man to power anyway. That's what you're telling all of these women. That's what you're telling me right now. Look at me when I'm talking to you. You're telling me that my assault doesn't matter. That what happened to me doesn't matter. And that you're going to let people who do these things into power. That's what you're telling me when you vote for him. So that was two women uh, stopping Senator Jeff Flake, uh, Republican senator, a Trump critic, and I guess you could say someone that was maybe likely to vote against this nomination process advancing um, but he did vote for it in the end someone who is marginally more likely to vote for it than the others he, he still oh, votes yeah. with totally, the trump totally. line like 89 percent totally the time. totally that's the thing but it's it's just if there's any chink of light it might have been coming from him even though it's like you say a lot of the time these people say they're going to do it and then they just follow the trump line or they follow the, the republican party line yeah so regarding the testimony yesterday uh uh Ford described the assault itself in detail, uh, that they pinned her down and attempted to pull her clothes off, though in their drunken states, they were unable to get her like them off, particularly with the one-piece bathing suit she was wearing underneath, and she managed to lock herself in a bathroom until they left. Uh, but given her, under, uh, her advanced understanding of psychology, because she is again uh, a doctor of psychology uh, from, I think, the, Cal uh, the University of Palo Alto? Uh, she was able to give full explanations of the differing levels of detail in her memory typical of trauma survivors. Uh, this included not remembering the precise date, although she claimed that she could narrow it down uh, with, uh, when it alleged she could narrow down when it allegedly happened with records of Mark Judge's work schedule at the time. 
Uh, from Kavanaugh's self-released calendar of the time, a likely candidate for the day is July the 1st, 1982, where he wrote down about a get-together with Mark Judge, a PJ Smith uh, who Ford also mentioned in her testimony, and several others for, quote, skis being beers, a, you know, brew skis, whatever. Uh, so she gave a fairly harrowing and extremely emotionally affecting, just fucking devastating testimony. And then Kavanaugh came in and screamed about how it was all just angry leftists and the Clintons, ironically uh, mirroring Hillary Clinton's allegations of a, quote, vast white right-wing conspiracy against Bill back in the 90s, uh, which were partially correct uh, when she did it, and in which Kavanaugh himself was involved in as much as it did exist. It was uh, interesting to see the comparison. Uh, she was clearly very upset having to do this, and it was it, it shouldn't be something she should have had to go through, really. She did keep a composure and she kept a professionalism that he clearly did not and he he came out and just almost like sean spicer on that first you know what i mean that first yeah. um i mean I, I i understand someone accused of this is going to go off on one but he he literally came out and, and did give he gave no evidence that he is someone of a stable character they're being coached they're being coached coached to play it forceful and angry because that's what resonates with a deeply angry, deeply entitled Republican support base. That's that's why they're all doing this. They're doing the same thing Sean Hannity does on yeah. his show every night. They're coming out angry deliberately as a tactic. And we should mention Donald Trump tweeted in the middle of this just as it finished. Judge Kavanaugh showed America exactly why I nominated him. His testimony was powerful, honest and riveting. Democrats search and destroy strategy is disgraceful and this process has been a total sham, an effort to delay, obstruct and resist. The Senate must vote. Yeah, well, uh, Republican Congressman Lindsey Graham uh, actually mirrored these allegations, calling the whole thing again a sham and crap and the most despicable thing I've seen in my time in politics. Later referring to Ford's testimony as, quote, garbage. Uh, when confronted by a rape survivor in the a hallway over whether or not the criteria by which he dismissed Ford's allegation would also apply to when she was raped, he basically ran away and just said, go talk to the cops about it. Uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted against subpoenaing Mark Judge for further investigation, uh, 10 to 11 along party lines, the same party lines that pushed forward. And what was the justification for that? They basically said... Oh, it, you know, it would be it would be not right to intrude on this guy. It would be it would be too harmful to him. He's, he's displayed uh, mental health issues before this Mark Judge guy, saying you know it shouldn't it wouldn't be right to uh, invade on him like this. And it's like, oh really? What about the lady who literally spent you know probably one of the worst days of her life um, having to go through this all again in front of all of you yesterday, testifying about it? Also, he gave interv he gave interviews in the run up to this. He's a media figure. He yeah. is. He is very public about this. It's not an intrusion. But He's... even if it was, what about the mental torture she's gone through? You know, it's just this weird stat double standard. They, they're trying to get away from this as much as they can. Yeah, anyway, he's currently hiding in Delaware using burner phones to communicate. It's, it's kind of embarrassing. He was almost immediately found out. I think what's happened here, and it's kind of... There's a moderate, like, little bit of hope that maybe in some amount of the investigation there can come up with some more substantiation of what happened here. Uh, in particular, I think, like we say, the July the 1st uh, thing offers a potentially fruitful avenue of investigation. But I think, I think what comes up here is that for the vast majority of these Republicans, like, Ford was the 
perfect like rape testimony presenter she was educated affluent respectable socially she was eloquent she was literally able to explain away using accurate like psychological understanding the kinds of discrepancies in uh, memory and in uh, fidelity of memory that typically get hung around rape victims necks in basically every other walk of life unless we're going to start coaching like other people alleging rape claims of that kind of thing i don't know how we're going to get a more a more perfect testimony from someone like this and for so many of these people they admitted her claims were very credible she comported herself very well and they voted to proceed anyway and what that tells you even as they they fucking talked out of the other side of their mouths that she was like very credible and it was very moving it shows that like, if it's credible, there should be an investigation. What they meant by saying it's credible, we're going to proceed anyway, is that it does not matter to them that she, what she went through. It does not matter to them whether or not it's true. Mm. It was a confession. It was not even, like, back in the, uh, I think, 80s, uh, when Clarence Thomas was being taken up to the bar, that, like, Anita Hill was treated with open contempt. But at least that wasn't this patronizing, that was very nice, dear, that was very brave, now we're going to elect this man anyway. It, it, it was, I can only imagine the despair that actual survivors of this kind of thing must be going through. Well, well we heard this, some of them there, didn't we? Yeah. You know, it, it's heart-wrenching. This indication that it will never be good enough, that they will be denied epistemic injustice, f like, for as long as it benefits the powerful for them to do so. That it, it's, it's pure, it's the basest politics and the most grotesque kind of mercenary politics. And it, it really is quite shocking to see considering how, you know, they've been attempting, the Republicans have been attempting to discredit her in the entire run up to this. And she just came away and her testimony blew all of their complaints out of the water. Just, just before you go on, I just wanted to mention this. You were mentioning about how people have victims of sexual assault how they must feel going through this whole process yeah because they've all something. identified with her completely because it what what she described it completely passes the sniff test it's completely plausible well the national sexual assault hotline uh call volume increasing 147 percent and there's organizations out there who offer helpline services and they've seen a similar rise well of course i, I can only imagine how traumatizing this experience must have been for them I'm sure there'll be plenty of Republicans that just won't believe any of it. For a start, like we say, it's it's very easy for men to live in a world in which sexual violence is a marginal affair. That it's it's not something that really affects very many people. And so there can't be very many culprits of it around. They must all be the kinds of people you would imagine would be rapists. And so the idea that like oh there's no way that like a fratty douchebag party kids would rape someone is just absurd and the fact that it happens to be their special boy who apparently the, you know brett kavanaugh the carpool dad is just swell like the idea that that guy might have raped someone is completely in line with the like shitty like kid that he appears to have been when he was that age and something where you know it's kind of like with trump people who've been through that kind of thing i get the impression like look at the portraits of that guy and go like oh yeah yeah yeah, that's exactly the kind of guy that does stuff like this it's just fuck it's it's been so hard following this for the last two days just how fucking draining it must have been and it's not over obviously there'll be a senate vote soon and we'll come to that when it happens right yes uh we're going to move back to the uk now and back to labor conference 
um, something I forgot to mention at the start. We actually spoke to someone uh, at TWT um, about a particular issue with a lot of young people at the moment, private renters. Uh, there was a panel at TWT called Rentquake, Strategies and Tactics for the New Private Renter Movement. That involved people from London Renters Union, Greater Manchester Housing Action, ACORN, uh, Generation Rent, uh, and it follows off the back of some proposals put forward by Labour, announced actually at the conference. Um, so I had a talk to Jacob Mukherjee from Generation Rent about this. I forgot to mention that at the start of the show, but let's hear from Jacob now. So I'm Jacob Mukherjee, I'm the Campaigns Officer for Generation Rent and I'm also a member of the London Renters Union. I saw you yesterday at a housing private rent orientated talk panel and sort of discussion groups about what needs to be done in the private rented sector and some of the groups that are forming actively like ACORN, um, yourself, London's Renters Union um, to kind of combat problems that are going on there. For those that didn't go, give us a little overview of like how it went, what was it about and some of the things that were discussed. Yeah, so the aim of the session was to kind of showcase the um, growing um, but still quite new private renter movement that's emerged in the last few years. And you mentioned some of the groups that are involved in that, ACORN and the London Renters Union uh, are two of the main ones. And the session dealt with, as you say, some of the problems facing private renters, namely kind of obviously high rents, but also insecurity. Um, and the fact that uh, it's very, very easy in this country for landlords to evict tenants and uh, that causes a whole host of other problems. It, it's a driver of homelessness, but it also makes renters afraid to complain about the conditions in their, in their flats. So in the session, we talked about some of those issues and then we had some kind of practical tips on organising from each of the four groups involved. That was uh, Generation Rent, London Renters Union, Acorn and Greater Manchester Housing Action, who all do things in slightly different ways, but have all had some real, real successes. Um, so it was quite a participatory session. It was absolutely packed, um, which I think shows the level of interest in this, in this now fact that people in the labour movement um, understand this is a priority and it's actually somewhere where labour could really distinguish itself from the Tories who who haven't done a great deal to help private renters um, to, to be diplomatic about it. Uh, yeah there was a good energy, um, it was a good session, people seemed to enjoy it and hopefully it will lead to more people joining their local renter unions and getting active and uh, taking the fight for better conditions, better security and, and more controls on rent uh, going forwards. And do you think that's what people primarily need to be doing? Because there was one question uh, that the gentleman from ACORN asked saying, what's the problem? Not enough people are in ACORN. How do you solve it? Join ACORN. Do you think people need to be getting involved more in these groups, forming renters unions and things like that? Do you think that's the way forward to solving this? 100%, yeah, 100%. I think, I think we, we need a stronger renter movement in this country. You know, the, these organisations are, are small at the moment, they're young. We need to be talking about thousands, tens of thousands of members in every city in, in the UK being in a, in a renter union. And that's the situation they have in Germany and Sweden and Netherlands, where renter unions are, are much stronger. Um, but in order to, to make that happen, we need to um, protect renters' right to organise. We need, we need to make it so um, renter unions actually have some real power, um, that renters' uh, security is protected so that if we start to organise, we can't just be evicted by our landlords. Um, we need to give uh, renter unions a bit of financial help as well. We need to give renters the right to withhold their rent. So we need all of these uh, reforms as well, which means we, we not only need to be organising to help members in their individual problems and collectivising those problems, but we also need to campaign to get government to change the law. And uh, one thing maybe we'll come on to in a second is, is there have been some great announcements from Labour actually on this mm. today. Um, and, and I was, was going to say, yeah. you know, 
in that session with you, you were, you were talking about Section 21, yeah. this uh, mechanism that landlords can use to uh, evict tenants uh, for no fault of their own yeah. with two months' notice. And uh, you were saying about the problems with that, how different ways that people have been trying to battle against it. And you were saying specifically about the Labour Party, they haven't yet come in to take on board problems there. And that's suddenly a day later <laughs> changed. So that's probably something you've opened the moon about. Yeah, I mean, it's great news. Um, we've been campaigning on this for a while and particularly intensely for the last few months. And um, yeah, as you say, there's some people in Labour who were very, very enthusiastic in supporting the abolition of, of Section 21, which is the mechanism, as you say, which allows no fault evictions, allows your landlord to kick you out after as little as six months for no for no reason, without having to give a reason. But other people in the party were kind of a bit cautious and talking about, well, maybe we could just have longer term tenancies instead and still allow landlords to kick people out at the end of those tenancies. But now with this announcement this morning, Labour have committed to ending Section 21, to abolishing no-fault evictions, which is great. That means under a Labour government we'd have open-ended tenancies, um, protected tenancies, secure tenancies, as they do in loads of other European countries. Um, on top of that, they've also pledged that they would give some kind of start-up funding to help renter unions organise, which I think is especially welcome news because it's, it's not saying all we need is more legislation from the state to kind of protect renters. It's saying that renters can actually organise in their own interests um, and the state can give them a helping hand in that, which I think is absolutely the right way to go. It's, it's for me, if Corbynism is about anything, it's about empowering workers, renters and, 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 and other people in society to organise in their own interests and giving them the tools and the support. I think that's um, 20 million, isn't it? Yeah, that's, 20 that's million pounds is what, they've, is what they've come up with, which, which would be great. And, and you know, I, Obviously, we need to make sure rent unions are independent and, and eventually would be funded by their members like trade unions are. But this, this startup funding would be especially helpful, I think, especially because rent unions find it really difficult to organise because renters are really fragmented and insecure, as I say. So, yeah, I think this idea of some startup funding to help rent unions get off the ground is, is an excellent policy um, and one we are fully behind. Okay, so that was Jacob Mukherjee from Generation Rent. He's also, like you said at the start, he's a, a member of London, uh, London's Renters' Union um, and talking about those interesting proposals from the Labour Party announced there, abolishing Section 21 um, and 20 million, 20 million for renters' unions. That's pretty bold. I didn't see that coming and it seems really interesting that the Labour Party are going to say, you know, we're going to back this we're going to make this happen we're going to take groups like acorn and we're going to really support them um also they announced that we did mention this in the interview there of jacob apparently i'm pretty sure if I, correct me if i'm wrong but uh these renters unions are going to actually similar to trade unions have legal grounds to be able to take on um landlords um you know an actual you know court hearings yeah that'd be right. fun. i mean <laughs> it's really taking it up a level um to the, to the point now where at the moment renters unions are basically activist groups that just go on direct action which can be really effective but combined with this it changes the landscape of private renting completely yeah absolutely and considering that our entire generation is going to be renting for the rest of our lives this kind of thing is definitely a necessity so uh, that was uh, the Labour Party announcing that also at conference the main sort of focal point of the conference is the leader's speech whichever political party it is obviously Jeremy Corbyn Labour leader his hour long um speech to conference was quite interesting and we're going to pick out a few moments of that now the first of those is obviously tackling the anti-semitism row that's engulfed the labor party and much of the left over the summer and uh, he addressed this uh, in his speech i'm going to go to that clip now 
and we're going to hear what he had to say on it. The Jewish people have suffered a long and terrible history of persecution and genocide. I was humbled to see that in a memorial two years ago when I visited the former Nazi concentration camp at Terezin in the Czech Republic. The row over anti-Semitism has caused immense hurt and anxiety in the Jewish community and great dismay in the Labour Party. But I hope and believe we can work together to draw a line under it. I say this to all in the Jewish community. This party, this movement, will always be implacable campaigners against anti-Semitism and racism in all its forms. We are your allies. your ally and the next Labour government will guarantee whatever support necessary to ensure the security of Jewish community centres and places of worship, as we will for any other community experiencing hateful behaviour and physical attacks. We will work with Jewish communities to eradicate anti-Semitism, both within our party and wider society. And with your help, I will fight for that with every breath that I possess. So that was Jeremy Corbyn, uh, Labour conference, talking about anti-Semitism there. Possibly in the strongest terms that I've heard him use so far, saying he's going to fight it with every single breath he takes, um, saying he's going to work with Jewish communities and also a, a Labour government would entirely support Jewish communities in uh, security, um, uh, in terms of securing you know, Jewish schools that we've heard about, they need bodyguards at and things like that. Um, so that was in the middle of there, the first standing ovation of that speech. It was, I think it was quite a, an interesting moment that the first standing ovation was Jeremy Corbyn tackling anti-Semitism. So what do you think his detractors would see from that? Do you think, his, do you think the uh, people that are saying um, Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite, what would they react to that? I mean, well, they'll say big words from an anti-Semite. The only way that he can truly make Labour the, like the party to fight against anti-Semitism would be to get rid of him. I mean, the, the glib answer is he says he supports uh, Jewish communities, but then why is he so against the biggest Jewish community of all of them, Israel? Why is he so endlessly critical of them? Uh, you know, this is this is why Jewish people in this country don't feel safe. Like, I, I mean, I don't want to, like, put words in their mouth, but there are glib aunt, there are glib responses to that that I imagine would come to mind. Yeah. Uh, he went on after that as well to say anti-racism is integral to who we are. And that he won't accept uh, when uh, the Labour Party is attacked by Tory hypocrites who accuse us of anti-Semitism one day, then endorse Viktor Orban's hard right government the next day. Um, we mentioned that on the last episode of this show, uh, all about that happening yeah, there. Um, it's correct. And also, we didn't mention, because this happened since then, the Tories received a letter from Viktor Orban thanking them for voting in support of him, which completely destroys that whole operation they had of like from number 10 sending letters to the Tory MP saying please disassociate from this let's yeah. play it down no, it he's to happy him. to associate himself with them <laughs> he's literally just sent a letter saying thanks guys it's so awful anyway yeah it's just a big photo of him giving the thumbs up and a big <laughs> smile after this he went on to the hostile environment obviously because that's involved with uh, racism and he was saying that's a nasty cynical politics that demeans the whole country 
And and there was plenty of other policy announcements there as well. Free childcare for two, three, four-year-olds. 400,000 for green energy jobs was a main um, point that was briefed to the media before this speech, the kind of focal point of it, really. Plans to reduce carbon emissions to zero by the year 2050. Climate policies were there. Um, very interesting. It's good to hear uh, someone speaking about those. But this 400,000 green energy jobs was a much more integral part to the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn pitching to deindustrialized towns. And this is where I thought it was really interesting because there was moments in this speech where he was really trying to appeal to voters, which he hasn't tried to appeal to in as much of a fashion as he has done previously. No, I mean, it hasn't been, it hasn't had to have been as explicit because a lot no. of people from former deindustrialized towns, you just kind of assume like, oh, they go labour anyway. Yeah, and also, you know, it's been a lot of uh, policies for younger people. There's been the housing issues, there's been student loans, there's been all of that. And he's really, really got that young vote now. The millennials, they're up to 40s. Um, up to 50, he, you know, they were winning. It's that yeah, 40 he's to... consolidated that. Now it's about locking down a proper winning coalition. Exactly. I mean, that's what the, the centrist said we should always be doing at the start, right? We should be looking towards government and appealing to voters that we don't currently have on our side. Yeah, right? yeah, but they meant Tories. Yeah. Anyway. They meant people who are already committed to being Tories and we should do that by being more Tory. Well, true. I mean, I think he is trying to appeal to some Tory voting people here as well. I think there's a lot of these towns like Mansfield that voted Brexit and then voted Tory last year. Um, we're going to hear more about Mansfield a bit later. Um, there's a lot of these sorts of towns that, I mean, this is the towns that Labour need to win to win the next election. Um, they're deindustrialized. They're, some would say, dilapidated. It's towns like that that Labour Party need to win. According to Patrick Maguire at the New Statesman, sources close to Corbyn have described conference as its most direct pitch yet to people to post-industrial towns and communities. Enough from me, enough from all of this. Let's just actually hear what Jeremy Corbyn had to say in his speech around this. We're talking about rebuilding Britain this week, but I also want to make an appeal to the older generation who built modern Britain. It was you who rebuilt our country after the war, kick-started our economy, built our NHS, and created our social security system. It was your generation that built the council housing won our rights at work and made our country a better place for all. It was your work and taxes that paid for a better retirement for those who went before you. So we owe it to you, the older generation, to rebuild Britain so you have peace of mind and dignity. And we will fulfil that obligation with a triple lock on pensions, protected along with the winter fuel allowance, a bus pass and a national health and care service that can look after you and your families with the respect that you deserve. This is solidarity between all generations. So that was Jeremy Corbyn there again speaking about Older voters, really, really appealing to older voters and trying. I mean, we've got the obvious stuff in there, pensions and bus pass. I think that's on the table already. But, you know, there at the end, an NHS that means that your family can be supported, your children, your grandchildren. Uh, and at the end, that's solidarity between generations. I thought that was a really key point there. The voters that Labour have been struggling with. And we've got the Labour Party now um, trying to go forward into those 65-year-olds, those 70-year-olds. Um Demographics that the Tory party excelled at getting the vote before and Labour really struggled. Um, do we see the Conservative Party managing to do this sort of thing with younger voters? 
the group that they're meant to be appealing to right now? Absolutely not, and I think that um, I th I think that this is a a competent pitch towards that kind of person. I think that this is if they are going to peel away enough people there to win. I don't think like they're not going to get a hundred percent of the vote, but they no. Like, but if they, they increase, seems, they increase yeah. by if if because at the moment we've got the Tories doing just as well with older voters and badly with younger voters that the Labour Party are doing just as well with younger voters and badly with... It's a very... Yeah. It's almost... The, the, if you look at the numbers, they kind of mirror each other on both those demographics. So if they can, feel, if they can peel back like 10, 20%, like that, that's a win. That's yeah. a, they like, don't have to win that demographic. They just need to do being far better with that demographic than the Tories are with young people. Um, so extremely interesting there. Um Lisa Nandy MP for Wigan is someone that's very integral to this because she's been speaking for a while that the Labour Party need to appeal to towns um, like like the ones mentioned. And just after the conference, the Labour Party released a party political broadcast, um, which basically goes through. I mean, I'm not going to play it now because it is very visual as well. There's a monologue over the top talking about lots of stuff that needs to happen, lots of policies. But, you know, there's, there's in the centre of... Uh, the political broadcast there's filming in towns like mansfield um key places that need to be won by the labor party in order to win uh, to go into government in the next election um and these are towns that lisa nandy is saying we need to have a more a focus on our electoral strategy to winning these towns over and clearly she was very pleased to see this sort of party political broadcast go out describing it as powerful the challenges facing our towns go back decades and need big answers they go back decades to the Tories fucking us up under Thatcher. Exactly. That's what she's underlining there. And that's the narrative of the Labour Party once again. Yeah. They're actually having something that isn't just will give you a fix, you know, a kind of new Labour fix that will keep you keep everyone happy for about 10 or 15 years. Yeah, they aren't twiddling knobs anymore. Yeah. Uh, we've seen reaction from this from Conservatives because clearly a lot of Conservatives saw this Labour Party broadcast and were like, shit, these guys... We might actually lose the next election, guys. We've <laughs> got Sam Gimar, the university's minister. Um, he's come out saying the Conservatives risk becoming a rump party of nostalgic nationalists. They need to, saying that senior ministers have said after Labour announced a package of in, in, interventionist policies aimed at Middle England. This is this is the Labour Party doing what the centrists said that the Labour Party should be doing when Corbyn came to power. Well, that's because when the centrists said that that's what they should be doing, what they actually meant was they should be electing us to power. Yeah, uh, and but... that, and that not and not that we should have a left-wing Labour Party that appeals to people that have been let down and their lives have been held back in Middle England and deindustrialised towns over a period of decades. Oh, absolutely not, not, not. Not that. Not because just, they, that, they just that we should ape neoliberalism and we they should don't, ape they don't Tory think a party. Party has the. They don't think a left-wing party has the ability to convince people. Yeah, it's it's. But I, I think it says a lot that, yeah, a lot of conservative commentators were talking about how concerned they were about this and about how the Labour Party seems like they're the ones with the ideas. And they always go to great pains to say that they're clearly bad ideas that would clearly lead to disaster. The implication, of course, there being that, like, the if the Tory government could be more left-wing, it would be, and they aren't making an ideological choice to take the positions that they do. It's that anything else would be insanity. But um, uh, George Freeman, Conservative MP, speaking on LBC, he sounded like a, an MP from an opposition party when he was speaking, saying, you know, we've been in power for this time and there's all this stuff that's fucked. And the Labour Party are bringing out all these ideas and we need to be doing the same. 
But they can't do the same. They don't have anything else to offer. The and only thing that they can say that they have is more of the same, maybe with a slightly nicer branding or exactly. a slightly newer branding. And that's and that's the key thing about where politics politics is going in this country. The the pendulum is swinging towards the Labour Party, not because they're managing to phrase things really well. They really have they have answers to problems that are coming up in the twenty first century that. The Conservatives not only don't have answers for... They cause the problems. They, they, they can't have the answers. They, they Their ideology just doesn't... Climate change is an obvious one. They, they are causing the problem, not yeah. being able to solve it. In order to get anywhere near um, having answers to solve these problems, they'd have to reinvent themselves in such a drastic way that it would not look They'd like, have to be a different party. Exactly. It would be a completely different beast, completely. Let's finish there. Been quite a show. We've gone through quite a few things that more than we normally do. We have. This is very chock a block. You you should thank us deeply. <laughs> and this has been off the fence. My name's James Fox. I'm Alex Maskell. Hear us on SoundCloud.com/slash Off the Fence and get us on Twitter as well at Off the Fence Talk. Cheers. <laughs>